Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's NDP has requested the Auditor General review how the Ford government designated certain areas as COVID-19 hotspots. Has the roll-up become a political issue? And Unifor is calling on the provincial government to expedite vaccination on all frontline workers who must attend their jobs in person. Jerry Dyer, Unifor's national president, joins us to talk about that. And small businesses have been clear they cannot bear more costs while they're under the COVID-19 restrictions and a third wave. What else is on the CFIB's priority list for the federal budget? Well, we'll talk about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're going to talk about question period at Queen's Park yesterday. Uh, it got really hot and heavy, and it all has to do with the vaccine rollout. As we've been reporting over the last couple of days here on the program, there are some, shall we say, inconsistencies uh, with the way that the Ford government has actually handled this. And, and a lot of finger pointing, of course. They just want to focus and say, well, it's all the federal government's fault. But uh, Global News reporting yesterday suggested that uh, there are over a million vaccines that are sitting in refrigeration someplace, and the government's not handing them out. And people are having their vaccination appointments being cancelled and they're saying, what's going on here? Why aren't we having access to these sorts of things? There's also some concerns uh, about uh, the hotspots and the designations that we talked about earlier this week. And uh, the insinuation from some folks is that maybe the government was playing politics when they decided who was going to get some of the increased vaccines. And the uh, question period yesterday uh, focused an awful lot on that. Essex MPP Taras Natashek asked about uh, what was going on here. And, uh, well, the health minister, Christine Elliott, wrote, and uh, she was a little ticked off. The hotspots were informed by the science advisory table using public health Ontario data. Their advice was accepted by the vaccine task force, which is comprised of many people who are outside of government. These are people who are specifically knowledgeable in this issue. Uh, and on and on it went. Uh, not so sure that was a, a clear and direct answer, but uh, the opposition members are certainly not satisfied with that. Uh, so what are the next steps on this and what's going to be happening? I mean, the numbers are spiraling out of control again with new cases. Uh, we want to get vaccinated. And when you find out that uh, that maybe uh, we're not on a level playing field here, uh, it's it's a little frustrating, I think, for all of us. Joining us to talk about this is Andrew Horvath, uh, the leader of the opposition, of course, NDP leader. Uh, and uh, Andrew, first of all, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could be with us. There's so much going on here. I'm not quite sure where to start. But let's let's talk about yesterday and your letter to the Auditor General. Sure, Bill. Good morning, and thanks for inviting me to um, be part of the conversation at home here in Hamilton. Uh, I, I want to say that uh, I seriously and sincerely hope that this in no way was politicized, because if it was, the implications are really quite significant. But we are not getting a clear answer from the government. One day, the Minister of Health says, oh, they were chosen uh, because of the, we were particularly thinking about the one in Ottawa, in Canada, uh, in the uh, region of Ottawa. And, and, and she said, well, this is because there were long, this is old data and there were lots of long-term care and retirement homes in that riding and we needed to prioritize it. And then we find out it's, it's actually the Minister of Long-Term Care's riding, but there are no long-term care or retirement homes in that riding. And so this just makes, uh, makes things even that much more muddy uh, for the Minister of Health to kind of dance around, change her tune, change her story. We need the facts. We need the information from an unbiased perspective, and that's why I, I wrote to the Auditor General, because she's the independent officer of the legislature that hopefully can shed some light. And I know that invariably that would take some time and, you know, but I mean, we need answers now. I mean, that's the frustration I think an awful lot of us are feeling because uh, we talked about 
the, the circumstance that you're uh, uh, focusing on right now, but about who is going to be designated as hotspots. And you heard yesterday, of course, the Minister Elliott's uh, response to this, saying this was all done in cooperation and in cooperation and collaboration with the local medical officers of health. Well, not in Hamilton, apparently. <laughs> not uh, because, in Hamilton. Because Dr. No. Richardson asked for two more designations and was refused. I the, know. And outright refused. And then, in fact, the medical officer of health in Ottawa took that postal code off of her list because it wasn't appropriate. So there's something fishy going on here. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, we've both been around political discussions for many, many years, and often when there's smoke, there's fire. So we're going to keep pushing. Uh, We're going to keep the pressure on the government. They're trying to turn it around to sound like we're politicizing this. We're not. We're trying to get answers. When you have 10,000 people have their appointments canceled in Scarborough, literally the place where there are the, uh, the, where is the highest uh, uh, rate of of, uh, positivity in terms of tests, 24%, pretty much one in four people who get tested are tested positive. Uh, That's frightening. Uh, So we need to actually aim the fire flames. That's how we stop the spread. And that will help everybody. If we can stop the spread of, of these variants that are out of control, uh, then, then everybody will be helped uh, because we'll, we'll wrestle this virus to the floor and we'll also be able to save our health care system, which is literally falling apart at the seams right now. Uh, it's it's frankly it's it's frustrating obviously it's it's a little scary for people that are concerned about the the, the new variants and and a little more than a little embarrassing i'm sure you saw the story this morning where the premier of new, new brunswick is now offering to try to help ontario uh to do with some of the hot spots and the, the insinuation right. here is that we we haven't got our act together here uh, <laughs> and, and, and and it well it's out of control i mean when you hear about the new numbers right now and you talk to the medical professionals and 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 to their point you know they're saying well you know we've got this consultation thing going on i'm hearing from medical professionals and global news is talking to them from right across the province and they're saying we're not getting what we're asking for we want more vaccines and and you know that right here in hamilton i mean you know you the the request has gone in for more vaccines paul johnson and dr richardson have both said that now we find out that there's a million of them sitting in fridges someplace and they're not giving them out yeah, no, that, that's crazy. I mean, when you have uh, the spread the way it's going, you know, you just you have to get out there and get those, those needles into people's arms. And, and you're right. I mean, the, the rollout of this vaccination program has been a mass confusion, uh, poorly communicated, poorly organized, sloppy, slow. Um, you know, government last week, uh, Ford made some announcement about, uh, oh, if people 18 plus in the hotspots are going to be, you know, heading out to, uh, we're going to be, we're heading out as we speak uh, with, you know, with mobile and pop-up units to, to vaccinate those folks. It wasn't true. There was no plan. The public health units had no idea that this was coming forward. Uh, and then the, the Premier, when people are saying we can't get an appointment, we don't know what to do. We've tried everything. And these are young people, pretty savvy on the uh, on the uh, technology, right? The Premier mocked them. He mocked them and said, well, you know, you've got to be pretty stupid. If you, He didn't use that word. I have to, you know, I have to admit he didn't use that word. But it, but it came out as if, like, what's wrong with you? Like, you, you know, you, you can't figure this out? Uh, that, that's your problem, not ours. That is just completely inappropriate. Insulting Ontarians who are trying to do the right thing uh, by trying to get the, the vaccine. I mean, it's just, been, it's just been one debacle after another. It's just one big hot mess. And it sits at the feet of Ford. I mean, it was his job to deal with all of this. Yeah, I, I get it. Nobody's perfect. And I get it that the federal government's got issues around supply. But distribution has been terrible, absolutely terrible. And people are getting sick and losing their lives as a result.
And, and by the way, just so people understand the chain of command here, and I, and I agree with you, I think the federal government has really screwed this thing up uh, about, uh, you know, procuring these vaccinations. Uh, and some of it beyond their control, but I mean, you have to plan for contingencies like this, and, and you know, they, they, they don't get a passing grade because of that. But the dissemination of the vaccines is a provincial responsibility, whether you're talking about BC, Ontario, New Brunswick, whatever it is, that's up to the provincial government. In other words, once they're into this province, it's up to this government as to where they're going to go. And that's, that's where the concern is. And I think that's where the yeah. conflict is right now is how are they making the judgments as to where this is supposed to go? Because they don't seem to be attacking the place is where this is going out of control, Andrea, and I think that's what people are scratching their heads about. Yeah, no, there, there's no doubt. It's a head scratcher, and it's also a head scratcher, uh, you know, to see how the government responds to the, the data. I mean, they're not paying attention to the science. This, it, back in February, they were told very clearly that the variants of concern, we risk them going out of control if the government didn't, uh, you know, slow down in terms of the reopening and, and didn't put more, uh, you know, more protections in place. Uh, to keep the virus uh, down and to keep people safe. They ignored it. They ignored it. They started opening up too fast, and we landed exactly where the modeling said we were going to land because Doug Ford and his cabinet sit for hours and hours and hours wrestling over a decision that should be pretty clear. It's about public health. And if you, if you put that as the priority and then make sure you're following up with supports for people and small businesses to help get them through, uh, then you can make the right decision. But, but, I mean, I just can't believe that that cabinet so many times now ford is complaining about you know being in cabinet meetings for six seven eight nine hours well into the evening it shouldn't be like that what's the decision it's about saving lives it's about stopping the virus from spreading and it's about supporting people and businesses to get through during those uh, precautionary times right when, when things have to shut down well, I'm, I'm trying to connect the dots here, and, and you've, I'm, I know I've heard the, the comments uh, that, uh, that Sylvia Jones, the Attorney General, made uh, to a CBC interview earlier this week where she essentially, when she was asked, why didn't you guys act sooner on this uh, when you had that advice from your, your science panel back in February, and she said basically we wanted to wait and see if those projections were actually going to come true and if it was going to have an impact on ICUs. In other words, they wanted to see if it was going to get as bad as the experts told them, and as soon as it did, then they started to react. <laughs> it's, it's astounding that they would... Now, of course, Dr. Yaffe tried to do some damage control the next day, so I don't notice that that way at all. But clearly that was their strategy because that's what they did. Clearly it was their strategy. And what kind of, like, why have these, why have these experts? Why get the information if you're not going to act on it? And I get it. It's, it's difficult for everybody. It's difficult for everybody. But it's difficult for Ontarians as well. It's difficult for kids and families. It's difficult for all those people that have mourned the horrific losses in long-term care when Ford said there was going to be an iron ring that never showed up. Turns out he waited for a year for the vaccinations while almost 4,000 seniors lost their lives. I mean, let's face it. This is a government that won't listen and uh, to the science that refuses to do the right thing uh, and and the, the you know the the mess that we're in right now is because of the way that they've handled it and i i, I just can't imagine I and mean, we're going to wait and see if our icus become uh, overwhelmed we're we're going to wait and see if the if the scientists are actually telling us the truth because we don't believe them give me a break how irresponsible is that 
Well, uh, how many other provinces right now are, ta are talking about constructing field hospitals? Because you know there's one going up right beside General Hospital, uh, yep. which indicates just how many new cases we're having in the Hamilton area right now. Uh, and, and again, you, you know, they didn't create the virus. I get that. But, you know, their job was to try to control the spread. And we can get into the whole thing about, about you know, their theory and their strategy on this. And, uh, you know, the, the, what they apparently have been trying to do here is mitigate it, not to crush the virus like uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and other places have. It's no wonder they're offering help right now because they knew how to do it. Uh, yeah. and, and so did Australia. So did New Zealand, places like that. We, we took a different strategy, and, uh, and we're still suffering because of the consequences of that. No, there's no doubt. And the mixed messages have been a nightmare. I mean, stay at home, but the, but the malls are open. I mean, stay at home, but here are all the places you can go. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. That's not what happened in places like New Zealand. That's not what happened uh, in places like Australia or in our maritime provinces. I mean, they were serious about it, uh, and they were strict with, with, with the, the measures. But I think Ford was afraid to do that in Ontario. Uh, I, I, I don't know why. You'd have to ask him. Maybe it would upset his base. I don't know. But at the end of the day, it's got to be about the, the the health of the public, right? It's got to be about public health. And yes, the field hospitals are going up, but, but Bill, who's going to staff them? I mean, the people right now on the front lines of our healthcare system are exhausted. I mean, they're training doctors to be uh, ICU nurses, um, uh, doctors from different fields. I mean, it is, it is one heck of a mess. And, and, you know, the beds are important, absolutely. But if you don't have the staff to take care of the people in the beds, then what do you do? And that's why I've said to the Premier, you have to, you know, he always, he likes to use phrases like, I'll leave no stone unturned, I'll spare no expense, which we know is all not true. It's just his way of talking, but uh, he doesn't act. And so I've said to him, you have to, you have to talk to other provinces. You have to talk to the military again. You have to talk uh, to the Red Cross again. You have to find every single opportunity to pull some physical resources in, some staffing resources in to staff those beds. So where do we go from here? I, I'm, I'm waiting for the response, as you are, I know, from the Auditor General and, and your letter uh, to, to take some immediate action on investigating what's going on here. But, I mean, that doesn't help us for the, the right here and now about vaccinations and getting stuff, stuff up here. Uh, and, and, you know, we're getting promises, of course, you know, that when we talked about, for instance, the Hamilton situation where Dr. Richardson's request was, was denied, uh, they say, well, this is going to be evaluated on a consistent basis. Well, that, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us right now because the criterion that they use for the initial decision is flawed. So are they going to yeah. use the same criteria in here now I, I don't know and it, it, it really comes down to public confidence in the government and I, that's waning right now to, and, and I'm being generous in using that phrase yeah I mean where, where we go from here I mean I think that uh, uh, you know even though you know your government's not helping you, uh, you people need to do everything they can uh, and I know they are I know they're working really hard uh, I know they're tired and exhausted uh, I know they feel like they're doing their part and Ford's not doing his part but, I mean, I think the best thing we can do is, is really pay attention to the stay-at-home orders, really be thoughtful about, you know, who you're mixing and mingling with and, and make sure that that's your household uh, and, and really think about what's essential and what's not essential. And what's essential is your health and well-being. You know, what's essential is that you don't uh, contract the virus. And, and when you think about it in those terms, you know, the, when you have to go out, the distancing, the masking, the washing of the hands, um, again, I... I I feel I just my heart just goes out for Ontarians who are, who, you know, who really have done as much as they possibly could, and and the people that lost their livelihoods, that lost their lives, uh, that lost loved ones, uh, that have you know have lost their jobs. I mean, it, they lost their businesses. I mean, there's a lot of loss uh, that we're all mourning, and that's gonna that's gonna have impacts. That's gonna reverberate for some time afterwards. So, I mean, the other thing is trying to keep an eye on, 
you know, is this government prepared to provide the kind of supports that people are going to need as we come out of this? And I, I, I see a government that's already cutting, and that makes me very, very concerned. It's very out of touch uh, with where people are and what they need to have some hope for the future. Well, I know we're just about out of time here, but I'm going to talk with Jerry Dyes in a couple of minutes here about, about frontline workers and about the, the, the priorities here, because we were promised, now before the vaccine rollout, and I'm, I'm talking about federal and provincial governments here, we were promised, Andrea, that the most vulnerable were going to be looked after first. And okay, they went into long-term care facilities, good idea. That, that's, that's about time they got that done. But there are so many other people that are vulnerable, you know, people that are cancer patients, people with autoimmune diseases, uh, and, and they're, they're just left at the back of the line here there's so many things going on frontline workers i thought they were all supposed to be looked after uh you know i can go over to my sobies here across the street from me right now they're not getting vaccinated but they've been told that they have to go to work each and every day uh, this, there's a, there's a lot here that the government has to answer for and, I, and uh, what we want here is some truthful answers about what's going on and how they're going to deal with this yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, and, and clear communication, you know, honesty, transparency, these are all things that help build trust. And we've seen none of that, which is why, you know, people are so fed up with, uh, with Ford's handling of, of this situation. Uh, so, uh, and, and I'm, I know Jerry's been really uh, vocal uh, about uh, frontline workers and essential workers on the uh, front lines of everything from grocery stores to meatpacking plants, right? I mean, let's face it, uh, the supply chain had to keep going, and, and those workers, uh, you know, they were putting themselves at risk. I mean, without any paid sick days, uh, without paid time off for vaccinations, uh, you know, without any supports whatsoever, people have no choice. I mean, I, I said in the House the other day, Ford doesn't understand what it's like to have to to earn a wage and how people are living hand to mouth because the wages aren't high enough to support your family. So yeah, missing a couple hours to go get a vaccine is a problem. Taking a day off or two to, to monitor your uh, you know your symptoms and pay, perhaps go get a test, it, people can't afford it. They simply can't afford it. So that's why paid sick days are necessary. And the fact that the government's you know trying to bamboozle people into believing that the federal program uh, is actually paid sick days, I mean that's just reprehensible. And it's completely reprehensible. Andrea, we'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, we'll stay in touch with you as uh, we get some uh, word, hopefully, from the Attorney General's Office, about how, or the Auditor General, rather, about how they're going to respond to this. Thanks so much for this. My pleasure, Bill. Stay safe. Opposition Leader Andrea Horvath, of course, in the Ontario Legislature, looking for some answers. We're going to continue the discussion about this on a couple of different veins, though, as uh, we get concerned about the vaccine rollout and, uh, well, the fact that so many of them are being cancelled these days, which is somewhat problematic, to say the least. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to continue the uh, the theme here about the vaccination program and the rollout, because there's a lot of concern about uh, what was promised and actually what's being delivered. And, and I know this is going on in other provinces, too, but let's deal with here and now uh, here in Ontario. A couple of days on the program, we talked with Dr. Timothy Sly, who's an epidemiologist and a professor in the School of Population and Public Health at Ryerson University. And he says it's about time that we started focusing uh, a different way as to who's going to get the vaccines. We now need to be asking who's able to pass it on. If they become infected, they can now pass it on to 4, 6, 14, 23 other people. These are the transmitters, and that's where we begin to say, look, let's forget about the age necessarily. Let's look, see what they do, how much contact they have. For example, public-facing officials of any kind, whether they're in the long-term care, whether they're in the homes, uh, residences, jails, food-packing plants, working with other colleagues, these should be at the top of their list. 
So it's all down to priorities. That's really what it comes down to. And, and one of those groups, by the way, that we were told was going to be looked after were some of the frontline workers uh, who have been told and mandated that they have to stay on the job simply because we need to continue food chains and things of this nature. Well, that's not happening. It's not happening to the degree that it, uh, it was supposed to happen. And there's a lot of consternation that's going on as a result of that. I want to bring Jerry Dice into the conversation. Jerry, of course, is a Unifor National President. Uh, Jerry, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate you joining us today. Pleasure is mine, Bill. Listen, what we, I, I anticipated, I, by the way, I'll just by the interest of full disclosure, I have not received my vaccine yet. Uh, I'm waiting. I've, I've got a time booked. It's not for another couple of weeks because of the way that the, the province has set this whole thing up. But I'm okay with that because I'm not a frontline worker. I've been working out at home for the last little while. I'm sympathetic, Jerry, to, to the people over at the grocery store that we've been going to to make sure that, you know, everything's going to stay well. Uh, I'm sympathetic, certainly, to the frontline workers in, in health care and so many others like that. Uh, why aren't they at the front of the line? I wish I could answer that question because it makes the most sense. And frequently, governments and common sense just don't find a way to coexist together. Let me give you the best example I can give you, Bill. I represent workers at Metro grocery stores. Our members have now been told that they have to wear three masks and a visor. Three, stacked on top of each other and a visor. So that's how dangerous it is to be a frontline worker in a grocery store. And I want you to remember, Metro is one of the employers that took away the pandemic pay from their employees because mm -hmm. somehow about eight months ago, the pandemic finished, uh, you know, was, uh, was all resolved. Um, the only people that didn't know that was you know, the metro management people and Loblaws, frankly, is just as bad. So that's an example. So, look, we're telling grocery store workers, we're telling Amazon workers to go to work, we're telling Canada Post workers to go to the depots, we're saying to the uh, our members that work in warehouses to go to work, work in transit, airline, telecommunications, I can walk through the list. So you're right. We know where people are being impacted. They're being impacted at the workplace. And you're right. If a grocery store worker goes to work with positive COVID-19, they are in a situation to spread it much more than a person that is working at home. So common sense says you should vaccinate the people who are on the front line who have the most exposure to other people. There are two things that we are told, and I'm going back over a year now, Jerry, about how we were going to try to flatten the curve. There's a phrase that we continue yeah. to use these days. Uh, and one was contact testing, of course, and tracing. And the other, of course, was to do testing on site. Uh, right. I know the federal government bought millions and millions of these tests, and, and I, I don't know where they are, but they're not being disseminated the way they're supposed to. But the other was, of course, the prioritizing the vaccinations right now. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to be oversimplifying the, the, the concern here on the crisis, that, and it is a crisis that we're facing. But if you've got a situation, and you mentioned, for instance, Canada Post or some of the warehouses in Peel region, uh, you know, just north of the city, up around Brampton and places like that, why don't they just say, you know what, next Friday, guys, we're going to be on site with our, our team and we're going to vaccinate everybody. Instead well, of going working, through this area code stuff. Yeah, I know, but where's the government here taking the lead on this? Look, there's no question. I've had two conversations in the last week with Vic Fidelli provincially. And he understands and he's pushing. And the issue, of course, is vaccines. So we've had solutions uh, or suggestions where we could set up basically mass units of the workplaces. We could set them up in cafeterias. I've got Air Canada that is saying to me, Jerry, look, if you can find a way to get the vaccine into our employees' hands, we will fully cooperate. The Detroit three are saying the exact same. So I've got major employers out there saying, look, we're in. Um, but we have to get 
beyond the talking about it stage and get to it. Um, because, like I said, I mean, the, the disease is, and the variants are spreading like wildfire. And so we need to understand what the best mechanism is and where the best opportunities are to nip this in the butt. And you're going to have to get right into the workplaces uh, where the majority of people congregate. And I know we're getting into some other issues, too, that uh, the government seems very uncomfortable to discuss. Uh, we were just talking with Andrew Horvath a couple of minutes ago about, about paid sick days. And, and, of course, every yep. time I've tried to raise this with ministers, with Minister McNaughton or the Premier himself, oh, the federal program looks after that. Well, no, it doesn't. Uh, there are some huge gaps in that program. And, by the way, there's also an awful lot of people that don't even qualify for the federal program. You got it. And, and Jerry, they, if they don't go to work, they don't get paid. If they don't get paid, they don't pay the rent. They don't buy those groceries. I mean, what part of that doesn't the government understand? You know what they understand? They understand completely. But they're trying to offload the blame to the federal government, and that to me is a straight cop-out. Look, the numbers are very straightforward. I mean, you've got about 70% of workers that make under $25,000 a year that have no sick pay provisions. Um, about over 60% overall have no sick pay provisions. So we know what's happening. And the Peel study was the best, where you had 8,000 people tested positive. As they're waiting for the results, 2,000 people continued to go to work with all of the symptoms. And then 80 people, even after they had positive results, went to work. Why? Because they can't afford not to go to work. So governments know this. The provincial government knows it. But why aren't they doing it? Because we're afraid to take on the corporate community. The conservatives are backed by the corporate community, and that's where they're taking their marching orders. And it isn't any more complicated than that. So I will argue that the conservatives are choosing politics of their base as opposed to lives in this province. Because as long as people are continuing to go to work that have tested positive, we're never going to get over this. So this is straight politics, and this is a straight cop-out. This is a straight example of politicians supporting their corporate friends, period. There, there are better ways to do this. We talked about this study that came out of France the other day. I know you've seen that, too, that essentially yep. said we didn't get this right right from the get-go. and We should have had COVID zero policies like New Zealand and Australia. Yep. And, frankly, the, the Atlantic provinces adopted, uh, and they've seen immediate results as of this. Yeah, there was some short-term pain, uh, and, and people were ticked off about it. But they didn't just flatten the curve. They eliminated uh, the virus, essentially. I mean, you know, there, there was no second or third wave in New Zealand uh, because yep. they were so diligent about this. Now, I... You can't go back, Jerry, to, to, to square one. I get that. But there's, they, like the old phrase says, it's never too late to do the right thing and simply say, okay, we're going we're gonna to start doing what we were supposed to do. You know, if, if, if warehousing is a problem simply by the nature of the job where you can't social distance to the same extent, well, let's look after those people and make sure that they have the PPE, make sure they have the equipment, and make sure they get vaccinated to try to stop the spread of the curve within those facilities. It's, it's not rocket science, really. No, here's how ridiculous this is. We know that the majority of deaths have happened in long-term care facilities. We know that the overwhelming majority of deaths in long-term care facilities are coming in for-profit facilities. Numbers are overwhelming. Yet will the government come up with a plan to eliminate for-profit long-term care facilities? Of course not. Mike Harris, the former Premier of Ontario, is a chair of the board at Chartwell nursing homes. Mike Harris is the one that pushed the legislation the most to deregulate it and today is making a million bucks a year. So why won't the politicians look at it and fix it? We know, of course, that PSWs were transferring 
the, uh, the disease from one long-term care facilities to another. Why? Because they make $15, $16 an hour. They're only working part-time. They only, the, the employers make sure they work part-time so that they don't have to provide, uh, don't have to provide any sort of benefits. So it's about maintaining the cheapest possible cause to the detriment of those that are living in the long-term care facilities. So it's clear. So, it, so much of what we're talking about, whether it's paid sick days, whether or not it's eliminating for-profit long-term care facilities, because I don't want my parents, uh, the preoccupation being profit, it should be their health. So these are all political decisions, period. And so at some time or another, the politician's going to have to say, listen, my priority are the residents in the long-term care facilities. I want the best possible care. My priority is to make sure that when workers are sick, they stay at home because it's the only way that we're going to get COVID under control. These are political decisions that can be made, but the decisions are not the right decisions because they're afraid of the backlash they're going to get from their political base. Such nonsense. Well, and Mr. Harris is not the only example of that. I know there are some other former PC cabinet ministers that that, that are yep. on chair boards in, in some of these others and actually yep. own some of these other facilities. But yep. there lies the problem. And that's where the hypocrisy really stings, I think, Jerry. Uh, this, you know, when, when, when they wanted to get elected a couple of years ago, I mean, they were pointing the finger at the, at the liberals who had been in power for 15 years and accusing them of cronyism and, you know, their buddies got all the contracts and they were lining pockets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they get in there into the corner office after their election they're doing the same damn thing except here's the difference their cronyism is actually costing lives because they're doing this in long-term care facilities they're not enforcing the rules that are in place already and you know we already know that they're what the year before this whole thing started there were like seven inspections in the whole province all year long that's that's not due diligence that's not doing what you're supposed to be doing yet they just they're oblivious to, to the impact that this is having Look, let me take a look at my organization. I have had 1,429 members that have tested positive. 187 in manufacturing, 149 in resources, 133 in transportation, 103 in communications, and 857 in services. Who are they? Our members that work in retail and wholesale, work in hospitality, work at car dealerships. You know, the whole, you know, the, 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 the sectors that provide you know, hand-to-hand service, the frontline workers. So the numbers are overwhelming. You know, probably 60% of all my members that have tested positive work in the service sector, in warehouses. So if we know what the numbers are. My organization is an example of all of the numbers all over the place. We're not in isolation. Like my union isn't different as it relates to where the problems are. It is an example, a snapshot of our society. So we know where the issues are. Why we would not make sure that the frontline workers are vaccinated or at the front of the line makes no sense. Listen, my 91-year-old father has been vaccinated. He's had both shots. And I'm very happy about that. But the reality is, is my father is in the house. He's not moving. I mean, we bring him his food. We Look, we take care of him. He's 91 years old. He's self-sufficient in many ways. But we do the grocery shopping for him, and we take care of him. But the bottom line is, my father at 91, I'm pleased. But explain why a 35-year-old worker that is facing the public six days a week, seven days a week, is, you know, feet away from people and are at the most risk to transmit the disease 
to have the disease, pass it on to the... Why aren't they moved to the front of the line? I can't figure it out. Not at all. It doesn't make a stitch of sense to me. Well, especially because if we start looking at some of the statistics here, and I know there was an argument to be made a year ago uh, when this whole thing was starting, because yep. a lot of people were characterizing the, the virus at that time, Jerry, as well, it's, it's, it's an old people's thing. It's, if you're over 65, you're at higher risk. But if you're 25, 30, uh, you're probably golden. <laughs> this variant is, is killing 25- and 35-year-olds. They're the ones that are ending up within days of being admitted. All of a sudden, they're on a ventilator in, in an ICU someplace. Uh, your members must, I mean, it's got to be very, very disconcerting concerning and, and very frustrating to even go to work every day knowing that hey i could be i could be next look our members are under tremendous stress as are uh, workers across this country um things have changed you're right what we know today is much different uh than what we knew one year from now there's no you know there's no you know a book a pandemic for dummies right it doesn't exist where a pandemic hits you do a b c d in e even though new zealand and some of the other countries seem to figure it out pretty quick but the bottom line is you have to also learn from where we're at and we're going to have to modify what we thought was the smart thing to do six months ago we need to modify it today because it's not working or things have changed or things are different or the variants are different than the original um the original covid uh, that we were fighting so you have to be able to modify and, and and move on the fly so we know today where the outbreaks are and i mean frankly we should have known a long time ago starting all the way back to the massive cargill meat processing plant in alberta when hundreds of people tested positive. And then, of course, we just saw it again with the Amazon warehouse, and we've seen it at Canada Post, and we've seen it in so many locations. So we now we know this, so let's get in. Let's fix it. Let's do what we can. I understand there's no such things as simple solutions to complicated problems, but you've got to learn from your mistakes, or you have to at least be able to change on the fly based on the issues we're dealing with today. And your your point about there are no simple solutions, I think, is is the underpinning of this whole thing. Uh, Yeah, of course, the federal government needs to come through with more vaccines. We get that. But, you know, I mean, after the story that we had on Global yesterday about there's a million vaccines that are sitting in fridges someplace because they're holding them back for a contingency as a buffer. how many more are they holding through? That's that's almost a third of the vaccines they already disseminated. Imagine what those million vaccines would do if they were released today. It, it well, wouldn't fix the problem. a lot of mixed messages because on one hand, we hear that there's a million vaccines sitting sitting in a fridge. And on another hand, you, you, we have the government saying, look, we're getting it as, as quickly as they come in. It's, it's as quick as it gets out. So, you know, the bottom line is is that that should be the philosophy. And if it's not the philosophy, I can't understand why. Well, Jerry, uh, stay on it. Uh, we certainly will, too, uh, until everybody that wants a vaccine gets a vaccine, and we're obviously a long way away from that right now. But uh, this is not about not liking governments or hating political nope. parties, because this is not supposed to be political law. This is a public health issue, yep. uh, and we're all supposed to be rowing in the same direction, and I don't get the sense that we are right now. Well, look, I have done everything I could not to be critical of, of federal, provincial, municipal governments, because, look, we're all in this thing together. Um, but you can't remain silent when you think that there's a serious misjustice going on as well. Look, we have to learn from our mistakes, and if people apparently aren't learning, well, then it's, it's uh, you know, it's, we're in, it's incumbent on you, me, and others uh, to speak loudly to make sure that we get through this together. Jerry, as always, thanks so much for the stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Have a great day. Take care.
Jerry Dice, uh, Unifor National President, and legitimate concerns about this. And, and this is not a conservative, liberal, NDP thing. This is a, this is a, an Ontario thing. This is a Canadian thing, where you want the governments to do the best possible job, and, and without political interference, and, and without people trying to influence the government's decision based on some other criteria than the common good. Uh, and and you know, there's right now I'm seeing an awful lot of people uh, that are shaking their heads and saying, I don't think that's happening right now. And that's unfortunate. And, and I'm talking about every level of government right now. Uh, you know, set aside the differences. I mean, if there was ever a time to say quit the bickering and the small-mindedness, this is the time. It should not be seeping into the decision-making process. And we're starting to get evidence that it is. And that's, that's really frustrating for all of us. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're just a couple of days away from uh, Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister uh, Christy Freeland delivering uh, the first budget for the, uh, the Trudeau government in almost two years now. And uh, maybe one of the most important budgets that we've heard in the last 25 or 30 years simply because of what we've been going through and what business has been going through it enduring uh, because of the pandemic and lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so uh, they are being vocal about this, and, and I'm glad that they are because the government needs to hear uh, the concerns that they have and the, and the, the obstacles that are facing businesses you know, you can't have a discussion about how we're going to get back here and get the economy going again without listening to the people that are right there on the front lines of that economy. And those, of course, are, are the business folks in this community. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Corinne Pullman, who is the uh, Senior Vice President of National Affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, Corinne, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thanks for having me. I don't think we're understating or overstating this at all when we're suggesting that this this is a budget that I think a lot of us are going to be looking at towards uh, to set the framework for, for our recovery. I mean, we know that the vaccine program isn't going the way it is, but at least it's starting. Uh, we want to see the economy rebound as quickly as possible, but, but the government needs to be aware of some of the consequences and some of the problems that are, the business has been facing and continues to face. Absolutely. And uh, as you said, there hasn't been a budget in almost in over two years now. And so some direction is needed to understand where we're going to go as an economy and where the priorities are going to be. And uh, small businesses need certainty now. They uh, don't need more uh, confusion. Well, and here's the problem. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, the lockdown is over, for instance, here in Ontario. Uh, you can open your doors now. That does not mean we're back to business as usual. There's, there's a lot of things that need to be done here and a lot of, of, of problems that need to be resolved. Absolutely. Um, for example, many small businesses, in fact, almost three-quarters of them have taken on new debt that they didn't have before, all because of the pandemic and the fact that they had to close their businesses. Many of them have debt well over $170,000, which for a small business can take years and years to pay down. So the lasting repercussions of what we've just gone through for the past year are going to be there with us for a while. And um, more assistance is needed because none of these small businesses asked for this. They were certainly willing to do their part to help, uh, you know, deal with obviously a pandemic. But at the same time, um, it's not their fault that they're no longer able to sort of function like they once could. Well, and I know that, you know, when this thing hit uh, way back when now, it seems like it was a, a, a generation ago, but it was just a little more than a year and a half or so ago uh, that we started to see the implications of that. I know governments tried to respond as quickly as possible, but uh, some missteps along the way, and your point's well taken. I mean, they offered things like low-interest loans, uh, and, and on the surface, that may sound like it, it's a good idea, but all it does is increase the debt of the small business. they they got to pay that back eventually, or defer property taxes, as they did uh, here in Ontario for some small businesses, uh, which is which is not really helping in the long term. I mean, those are those are bills that are coming due right now. Uh, what is has there been any discussion at all, Corinne, about about possibly debt forgiveness for some of this stuff? 
Well, we're hoping. It's certainly one of the big uh, areas that we've been pushing government to look at. I mean, it's one thing to obviously help them through the pandemic by providing the subsidies, which have been very helpful and uh, well used by many small business owners and have allowed them to sort of, uh, you know, retain, obviously, and get through the toughest times of the pandemic. But there is this lingering <laughs> load on their shoulders now of, of other debt that they you know, didn't plan to accumulate. In fact, there are certain programs, as you suggested, that have low-cost uh, debt vehicles, such as the highly affected sector credit availability program, that are now available to them. But many are choosing not to use it because they just can't afford to take on more debt. So we'd love to see the government come out with something on Monday that actually helps to forgive more of debt. could be part of that Canada Emergency Business Account Loan, of which right now about uh, 20% or more, or 25% is is forgivable. Um, we'd love to see that go up to 50%, for example, or maybe add a forgiveness portion to this highly affected sector credit availability program loan as well. These are just some of the things we'd love to see the government uh, potentially look at to help with some of that. I'm looking at some of the stats here, and I mean, this is frightening. I, 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 and Unless you're involved in this, Corinne, I don't know that people actually have a full uh, appreciation of, of some of the, the challenges and the problems that are going on. Uh, because small businesses have been open to close, they open to close, and it's, it's been awfully yeah. frustrating for them. Only 29% are actually making normal sales. It, was, it used to be 31%. We thought that was terrific, but that number's not getting better. It's getting worse uh, with the no. further lockdowns. I mean, it's you can't just open your doors and expect everybody to come flow back in again first of all you're not allowed to because of some of the restrictions uh, that are going on these days but it's really handcuffing any recovery that these people been, are, are trying to do on their own absolutely and it's a real challenge for many of them to understand what the future is going to look like that's why this budget is so important they need some certainty that these supports are still going to be there right now of course uh, the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy are in place till about june 5th but we don't know anything beyond that Doubtful will be out of this by June 5th. So, you know, having some certainty that they can continue to rely on the wage subsidy and rent subsidy beyond June is going to be a really important signal as well. So, you know, and, and basically, as long as governments continue to tell Canadians to stay home, stay home, stay home, we need to have supports out there for these businesses because, you know, people are just not coming back um, because some of the language that's being put out there for good reasons. And so we can't just suddenly lift these particular supports while we're still telling people to stay home. Well, I've, I'm on record. I, I've talked about this many times on the program. I, I just thought small business especially was being unfortunately and, and probably unfairly targeted uh, through this mm -hmm. whole thing because I, I have yet to see data, and I've asked a number of politicians, both federal and provincial, uh, to show me where small business is part of the problem for the spread of this virus, and I, I don't see it because I don't think it exists. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, there, there are other things they could have done, but, I mean, small businesses, in, in my experience anyway, Corinne, were the ones who were the most compliant. I mean, they were doing what we're supposed to be doing. They were restricting them number of people in the store. They were uh, ensuring that PPE was being worn, things of this nature. They were doing what they could to protect their staff at the same time. So, uh, But that's then and this is now. I mean, there's not much we can do about that. But I mean, it, it's something I think the government has to be cognizant of going forward. Uh, and, and I know that there's going to be some restrictions. We've talked about that even with full vaccination. The PPE and a number of things are still going to have to be worn. But if, as long as that's the case and as long as those restrictions are going to be put in place, uh, you, your point is well taken. The government has to also ensure that these support programs that they have right now are going to continue right up until the time that they said okay it's all clear and we don't have we don't have that directive right now do we no we do not and in fact the other big uh, barrier right now is the border right the fact that the border yep. remains closed there are 
literally thousands of businesses that rely on tourism in the border were coming into their high season. And many of them are not looking very uh, positive at the moment, given that the border restrictions are such. Now, hopefully Canadians will be able to move around and do some travel. And there are certainly part- pockets of the travel industry that have done better than others. But that's definitely another aspect, <clears throat> excuse me, of this entire debate or this entire issue that also needs to be looked at at some point uh, to make sure that these businesses can get back up and running. And, and that's a major part of this. I mean, in southern Ontario, I, I know when you talk about the border, a lot of people just seem to focus and say, well, that's that's Niagara Falls, and yeah, these guys are really suffering. Uh, U.S. tourism and, and U.S. dollars during the summer season especially uh, goes all the way up to the GTA. It, it's Hamilton. It's Toronto. It's it, it, uh, I, I know a lot of Americans that own property up north in cottage country, too, that, that want to come up here, and they do come up here every summer, haven't been able to do it for the last couple of years. I mean, this this is a huge impact on the economy, that the, the fact that those U.S. dollars and those U.S. citizens who want to spend that money are not going to be allowed up here, and hopefully that's going to change, but we don't know that yet. No, and there's many uh, small businesses out there that rely on that tourist dollar, right? Um, they've already uh, lost the season last year, and so many have sort of figured out a way to get through that. But potentially losing yet another season is, is pretty uh, devastating for many of them. So, you know, we've also been calling on government to potentially look at what can we do for the tourism sector in particular, especially if the border remains closed over the next several months. Corinne, what about uh, re-employing of people? Uh, you know, it's, it's probably not going to happen that as soon as, the, as the, the stores are allowed to open again that they're going to go back to full employment. That's just not going to happen right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, is there a hope here that there are going to be some incentives, some government incentives here uh, for hiring back to try whether, I don't know if it's going to be wage subsidies or something like that. I mean, there's a, a, a whole basket full of things that they could do in a situation like that, but offering some assistance uh, to get businesses back up on their feet and get people back in there working. Yeah, absolutely. It's something, again, that we've been pushing strongly for is to have hiring incentives as part of the stimulus plan. Um, the fact is, many small businesses haven't had a lot of revenue, but in order for them to get back up and running when the opportunity starts to present itself again, they're going to need people to help them do that. So having some hiring incentives or hiring support programs uh, could be even targeted towards younger people, for example, who've really been hard hit by the pandemic as well. Um, to sort of get people back uh, connected to their employers is going to be important. The wage subsidy is definitely part of that process. Many of them have been able to hold on to people because of it. But we, of course, want to sort of get back up to where we were. And hopefully uh, there's some incentives that will be included as part of the stimulus package to get people back into the doors um, of small businesses and making sure that they have the people that they need to be able to then get everything back up on their feet and have our communities be uh, thriving again as they once were. One of the stories I have heard, and I don't know that whether or not this is actually going to be a road that they're going to go down here, was offering some sort of incentive for consumers to, to get them spending. And Now, I'm a consumer, uh, and yeah. I'm not so sure that those are even necessary at this stage uh, because mm-hmm. the, the people I've talked to on this program over the last year and a half are, are ready, willing, and able to start spending their money. I mean, there's money that they usually wanted to spend that they haven't been able to. Uh, they want to get back to shopping. They want to start traveling. They want to go to to tourist to, to, to spots and vacation spots and things of this nature. I, I don't necessarily necessarily think that's needed right now. What's needed, I think, is help for the small businesses themselves uh, so they can be back up to speed and accommodate that that expected rush of people that are going to be back on there and putting money back into the economy. Yeah, and I I wouldn't disagree. I think, uh, you know, consumer incentives are some things that has been discussed 
before. Uh, I, I agree that there's probably quite a bit of pent-up demand out there as people haven't necessarily spent as much money either in the last uh, year or so. Uh, and as soon as they're able to, I think a lot of them will likely go out and do that. However, other countries have put in consumer incentives, such as tax uh, sales tax holidays and that kind of thing, to get people back into the doors of um, at least small business owners in particular, because I think, you know, there have certainly been larger organizations like, you know, the Amazon or Walmart of the world who have done okay during, throughout the pandemic and may not need that uh, type of stimulus. But if there is, should there be, for some reason, the government decides that some sort of consumer incentive is is required or needed, then we absolutely want them to wait until small businesses can fully reopen as well and be able to benefit because they're the ones that need it more than anybody else. Many of them are quite concerned that consumers will not return um, in the way that they did were there before the pandemic because a lot of, I think, consumer habits have changed as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit of, I think, the, the concern from a small business perspective around this. So one, if there are going to be consumer incentives, let's do that. Let's make sure that small businesses are fully open and able to benefit from it. Um, and I think that's an important key factor if we go down that road. But at the same time, we ask anybody who's ready to go out there and spend to make sure that they think about that small business around the corner before they get online and go to a big multinational corporation. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, mm-hmm. But there can be some roadblocks to this, too. And, and, and you've heard the discussion, I mean, about, let's face it, dude, the government has undergone massive debt with a number of these assistance programs. And, and there's a lot of pressure from other groups right now to say, look, you have to address that. You can't just pretend it's not going to go away. And, and I mean, the CD Howe Institute has recommended an increase of the GST or HST, I guess, in, in this case. Uh, there are other talks about, uh, about income tax uh, increases uh, to try to increase revenue for the government to try to address these situations. Uh, is, is there a concern here that, that if they're going to put that sort of thing on consumers, uh, which is going to increase spending and it, it, uh, increase the number of, uh, of tax dollars that they're going to have to spend right now, that that could curtail that, that, that excitement about getting back into the economy that we were hoping for and talking about just a minute ago? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to know exactly what uh, what's going to happen and to help sort of deal with a deficit. And there's no there's no doubt that there's a lot of concern around the growing deficits and debt that we're accumulating as a result of all of this. Um, you know, we as an organization, not one that generally asks for subsidies, we are very much fiscal hawks, but it just we're in a situation that's incredibly unusual. And so many small businesses are struggling because they are doing what they're being, you know, that they have to do. It's not their fault that this has happened. So there's always concerns that, uh, you know, whatever the fiscal plan is to get out of the deficit, um, how that will obviously impact buying habits and consumer habits is something that we'll have to watch. But we also understand that there is a need at some point to come up with a fiscal plan to basically find a way to get more closer to balanced budgets again. Obviously not in the near term, but potentially, you know, over the, the longer term in Canada. Well, certainly, and if we're going to talk about tax increases, whether it's on business or corporations or whatever the case might be, I I would think, I would hope anyway, uh, that the government would put a hold on that until at least these businesses are back on their feet. I mean, you know, they're they're more than willing to pay their fair share once they get back into full employment and and the sales start to go back up again. But this is really not the time, I guess, to add an extra burden to them. No, it isn't. In fact, the number one ask our members told us for the next federal budget coming on Monday is not to add any new costs on them right now. That's the biggest thing that they'd like to see in that federal budget, that there's no new costs being added to small businesses at this time because they simply can't afford it. So, um, you know, down the road, we can talk about what some of the other options might be. But at this point in time, it's, it's not the time to, to, you know, add in a whole bunch of new spending issues that may potentially add costs to them as well. 
at, or add uh, new tax increases of any kind. Well, we're just a few days away from this, and we'll certainly see if the government is, uh, I know they're hearing you, but if, whether or not they're going to listen and include some of this stuff, I guess we'll find out uh, shortly in just a few days. Uh, Corinne, thank you so much for this, uh, for the great work that your organization is doing, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again down the road as uh, we get some response to what's going on. Thanks again for today. Thank you. Take care. Kern Pullman, of course, Senior Vice President of National Affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, awaiting, as we all are, to see just what's going to be in that federal budget early next week. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.